Welcome to the Old Galway Diary Podcast. Each week, Tom Kenny and I, Ronnie O'Gorman, write a column in the Galway Advertiser. Before it goes to press, we contact each other and share what is filling the page that particular week. This podcast is that conversation. And I would add, we enjoy talking to you and would appreciate if you would give us a rate and review on the Apple Podcast app. Tom, good morning, a beautiful morning. It's yes, getting, indeed it is, yeah. yeah. It's getting a bit cold, it's getting a bit cold. Ah, uh, it's November, it's November, so. But you know, I was away a few days, and Galway is great, because you go away, and that's fine, and then you come back, and in those few days, there are changes, and the changes <laughs> happened. Suddenly, it was Christmas, and uh, I like the way Galway delays having all the Christmas windows until, you know, a decent period after Halloween, but suddenly it's Christmas in the streets and it looks great, you know, really lovely. Yeah, I think it myself it's a bit soon. Uh, yeah. I, I, You know, Christmas used to start on the 8th of December. That's true, that's true. That was the big Christmas shopping day for country yeah, people. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of like, I mean, you'd nearly expect them to be advertising Easter eggs now before the new year. <laughs> you know, it's all become so commercial and and I think that's a bit sad myself. Right, yeah. Well you have anyway. To, you know, I know. <clears throat> you have to have a certain amount of commerciality. You know, I mean it's kind of gets people in the humor. But I think we've been through a few grim old years with the lockdowns and things like that. And I think we're anxious almost to get into Christmas. I I feel I'm quite happy. I wouldn't be unhappy to put up my Christmas tree any day now. <laughs> Oh, right. Well, off you go. That's all I have to say. <laughs> it's just that I want to get not back. Not in our house. Not in our all house. Right, no, okay. no. Not for a long time yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's why we leave it so. Tom, yeah. anyway, what about you? What What are we doing this week? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> earlier this year, I wrote written about uh, the West Bridge, or O'Brien's Bridge, as yeah. we know it, and also about the Wolftone Bridge. And this week, it's about the Salmon Weir Bridge. Yeah. Uh, this being the third of the bridges in the city, uh, for the moment, anyway. Uh, the foundation stone for this bridge was laid in uh, 1818. And would you believe it? If a year later, the bridge was finished. Yeah. And uh, no cranes or anything like that in those days. Uh, and it seems as if the, uh, with no disrespect to those building the pedestrian bridge, but uh, they seem to have been there for about a year now. Anyway. At least. At uh, least. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> the, the original intention uh, behind the Salmonware Bridge was to connect the newly built county courthouse and the county jail on Mons Island. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the bridge is described as a very gently humped uh, five-span bridge, and it was originally known as the New Bridge, or indeed the Jail Bridge. <clears throat> the It was part of, well, the, the whole public works scheme that started during the famine then, uh, which built up both sides of the river and all the canals and, the kind of basin, etc. Uh, 
they res- they needed well it meant that they had to do a certain amount of excavation of the depth of the river uh, which necessitated it meant they had to underpin the piers of the bridge and to the extent of seven feet which was quite a lot but anyway this they completed this with uh, masonry of a character which they described as being suitable to the bridge there was of course urban folklore would tell us that there was a tunnel built under the river between the courthouse and the jail which seems like absolute nonsense to me why would they go to the expense of putting a tunnel under the river when they were about to build a bridge (laughs) over the river yeah but anyway it's a good story i suppose uh but what i really want to talk about was this the fact that years ago, in our youth, Ronnie, <clears throat> roughly between April and July, you could look over this bridge, uh, this which had a high parapet above it, or on both sides, <clears throat> and you could look down and watch the salmon making their way well, upstream. Indeed, we did. Yeah, indeed, mm-hmm. we did. Many the time. Yeah. To their yeah, traditional tourist, spawning grounds. Big tourist attraction town. It was huge. Enormous, and, and it's completely gone. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. The, the the salmon were making their way up to the spawning grounds. Now, the bridge, it had a high parapet, as I say. It, this was worn very glossy smooth by all the coat sleeves of the thousands of peepers, people who who you could you, see. There were places on the bridge where you could put your feet <laughs> and climb up slightly <laughs> to look over the bridge yeah. and... Uh, when you look down at the river, which wasn't very deep, you thought, what am I looking at? Oh, you can see your stones. And then suddenly you realize, oh, God, there's a salmon. And then, God, there's another one beside it. And then you realize you were actually looking at hundreds, if not more of them. Uh, and it was an absolutely beautiful sight. And as you say, it became a very major tourist attraction. It really did. Uh, yeah. Now, there's a, a wonderful description of it. There have been many. But I came across one in the Illustrated and Sporting and Dramatic News of 1879. <laughs> <laughs> the handsome stone bridge that spans the rushing Carib, though at all times and seasons a loitering place for the idlers of the sleepy old city of the tribes, the is yeah. The idlers of the city of the tribes. Yeah. yeah. What a lovely line. Is at an, an inverted commas salmon season. The grand focus of superabundant lassitude. Young, old, and middle-aged, the grave and the gay, the jointy shop clerk and the floss choked bag weaver, the sleek smug merchant and the Spanish feared bacoch or lame beggar. The priest and the parson and the matron and the maid, all and everyone, be their hurry never so great or their idleness distressing. They pause there to take a peep over the parapet at the glorious fish in the swift, clear water beneath, lying thick as pebbles and quite as motionless, save now and then when some salmon of business makes a rapid dart above its fellows through the limpid element It is pleasant to stand among this heterogeneous throng and to listen to the speculations concerning the weight of the fish below or the exulting bold stories of bamboozling the keepers 
and the jovial defrauding of the fishery proprietors. <laughs> so that was a description, and and that oh, kind of that was still there in the fifties, really. Yeah, ah, later, later into the sixties. No, well, in the late fifties and very early sixties, <clears throat> they dredged the river again, and unfortunately. That more or less finished the, I mean, the salmon still go up, but nothing like in the numbers at all. Uh, so anyway, I have a couple of photographs. The one is um, taken about 1865, and that shows it must have been during that salmon season, as they described it, because uh, there are a crowd of people looking over the uh, parapet. And the other then is of a postcard, an old postcard of about 100 years old. And it's looking down and it's looking at all the salmon lined up there. So it's a, it was a kind of a, <clears throat> a very old Galway tourist attraction, which is sadly there no more. And uh, I'm sure that even if it were making a comeback, all of the machines going on with the new bridge might have disturbed it as well. <coughs> anyway. At least we have a visual record of that uh, <laughs> phenomenon. That yeah. phenomenon is right, yes. Now, it, now, there's a lot of what you say, Tom, and I'm, I'm carried away by it. First of all, it's a beautiful bridge. It's a very attractive bridge. It is, yeah. It is. And, I agree. Um, and I'm very glad they're building beside it, which is a great idea, a pedestrian bridge. And as you say, it's taken them ages and ages to put down yeah, a few old yeah. blocks and throw an old bridge over them. I don't know why it should take so long, but obviously it's 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 going to be a work of art as well as everything else by the sound. Yeah. But the bridge is very attractive. And of course, it has been dangerous in recent years because, you know, trucks and buses trying to get across they swing over to the other side it's so narrow and pull back uh, yeah. on the left hand side if they're going over from the courthouse and of course God help pedestrians and pedestrians have been hit and injured indeed with well the footpaths are very narrow and so it, mounting the you know, you're inclined to step out without looking behind you uh, yeah yeah and if you were if you could walk two abreast, but if you walked three abreast chatting and talking, you mightn't realise that the cars are going to, if not get, get a swipe at you, just pass yeah. you by with giving you a bare inch. Of exactly, yeah. yeah. So the pedestrian bridge is, is really well, well needed, and it's going to be great when that happens. Um, now, the other I thing think is, so, yeah, yeah. The, the the salmon in the salmon weir, you're quite right. It was a great attraction. I used to look over it itself and all these backsides of men, women, children, nuns and doctors and all students and everybody <laughs> as they leant over the bridge, pointing to each other the size of some of the salmon, because some of them looked huge, waiting to go up the river and to get up the weir. Of course, it was a private fisheries. It belonged, I think, to a family called Palmer. And they used to net... Uh, salmon and eels and send them straight to Billingsgate in London, a very profitable trade. It was, I'm sure, if they caught a fraction of the salmon we used to see there. But yeah. do you remember the fish inns then? <clears throat> yes. There was a crowd of people decided, no, we shouldn't allow the fish be taken out of the river and sent to Billingsgate. The fisheries and the fish belong to us, us Irish. And they used to... Uh, you know, encourage a mass fishing where you could have 40 or 50 <coughs> people fishing on this private estuary or pri private fisheries. 
catching fish, much to the annoyance of the Palmer family and the bailiffs. And of course, they were very sensible. They kept out of the way. (laughs) Yes. And there were also, of course, snatchers. Oh, yes. Uh, Very highly expert fishermen and uh, with marvelous keen eyes. And it seemed like one movement as they hauled up a fish. It seemed like a big lump of the Irish press or the Irish independent appeared and the fish was almost instantly wrapped and hidden away in some way uh, before taken off to be converted into cash. (laughs) Well, who were the two brothers? There was a famous two brothers that were always snatching. They were known as the Snatchers. Well, Uh, Snatcher Kelly was one. That's right, Uh, yeah. Mate Lydon was one. (laughs) Mate Lydon was There is a famous uh, story about, maybe apocryphal, about Snatcher Kelly being in court yet again. And uh, the... um, for some technical reason, the judge let him off. And this came as a major shock uh, to the snatcher who, on leaving the court, turned around and said, uh, does that mean, Your Honour, that I can take the salmon with me? <laughs> <laughs> of course, Maid Lydon on another occasion was up in front of the judge and said, oh, my God, Mr. Lydon, you again. What did I give you the last time? You only gave me two bob a pound, Your Honour, he said. <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story about Mate Lydon. He called out to my mother in, in, a, in, a, in our home in Salt Hill and rang the bell and stood back from the door. My mother answered the door and said, hello, Mr. Lydon. He said, I'm just after leaving in a salmon now to your, to your husband, Frank. And he told me to come out here and get five pounds for the salmon. And my mother, my mother didn't have much money at all. So she said, oh, did he? Well, thought it was a bit unusual. But my poor mom fell for it. And she went in and she scrounged out a fibre from her money boxes and from her handbag and from the <laughs> savings and the, whatever it was and gave it to me. Thank you very much now, Mr. O'Gorman. And I went, but my father, instead of getting to a blue fit, he just collapsed with laughter. He thought it was the funniest thing. And he said, fair play to Nate. I'll never, I, I won't ask him for the money back. He deserves the fight. Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, great. he was wonderful. He really was great. Poor mm. old mate. And he used to go around the town looking for money. And uh, it became an honour to give him a few bob there at one stage, you know. Oh, indeed. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He had a few patrons. He had a few patrons. Uh, of which I was one. Yes, I was. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that was part of the fun. And, you know, he was a very important part of the fabric that made up life in Gaul with the colourful life that we had in the city. And so, a very nice man, actually. And he'd talk a little bit as well, you know. He, you know oh, he, and sing. A nice yeah. man. He'd sing. Especially with a few pints. <laughs> well, Tom, yeah. that's great. And I know a lot of people are going to get great memories out of that, particularly looking at the crowds leaning out over the... The, the, the side of the bridge looking down at the salmon. What a wonderful sight that was. It was, indeed. Come back. I think it was, they, they've been falling off in recent years. The salmon aren't coming up the river the way they used to. Um, there's a lot of... No, not since that dredging scheme <clears throat> went on. Yeah, is that what it was? Well, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, that killed us. A shame that that natural, beautiful nature that we used to watch every year as the salmon came up the river to spawn in in enormous numbers it was just a wonderful thing to see yeah okay well look tom that's great anyway i'm i'm concluding my story of dr james Connolly, 
And I tried to tell the story. He was summoned to appear at a sworn inquiry by the local government board in November 1876 after been asked by poor Patrick Barrett to come to his home as his wife was in labour and she was in distress. Now, the doctor refused. He showed every appearance of being drunk and used obscene language, as I described. <clears throat> and then eight hours later, about eight hours later, he eventually did call to the Barrett home and a stillborn child sadly was delivered. Now, during the inquiry, witnesses testified as to the doctor's good nature. <clears throat> the doctor admitted that he occasionally took a glass of ale, but that he was sober during his conversation with Barrett and sober when he visited Barrett's wife at her home. Only when he felt threatened by Barrett had he used uh, obscene language complained of, which he now very much regretted. Now, except for a gentle tap on the wrist for the use of intemperate language unbecoming to a medical man, Tom, in the case against Connolly, was dismissed. The surprise witness in the case was none other than poor Mrs. Barrett herself, who swore that at all times the doctor treated her with kindness and attention. On a previous occasion, the doctor had come without a visiting ticket or money to, and saved her life, she claimed. Now, this is amazing. Without even being summoned, Tom, the doctor arrived in her house and saved her life. The woman went further, stating in writing that if the doctor was not pardoned, and this is extraordinary, she would shorten her own days. And anyway, I, I'm going to complete the story today. Unfortunately, new evidence would arise uh, that made all Mrs. Barrett's evidence a total nonsense. But I'll come to that in a second. Anyway, the Barrett case, Tom, was extraordinary because the doctor's drinking habits were very well known. Two years later, a Mr. T. Kine, a poor law guardian, so a, a respectable man around the town, who had also been present at the Barrett inquiry, now came into possession of startling new evidence that would make the local government's board's decision null and void. He was demanding a new hearing. In a lengthy letter to the board, which I have in front of me, uh, he had a, and the, sorry, a lengthy letter to the Board of Guardians, of which he was a member. And the G Board of Guardians had joint responsibility for appointing the dispensary doctor. So this was a good board to aim for. He lamented that a great injustice must inevitably be done to society and to the sick poor, so long as Connolly, and he uses a very uh, sarcastic phrase, this paragon of propriety, Quote, is suffered to libel and trammel on committees of management as well as in his, his habit of insulting and by using the most obscene language many of those who stand in need of medical treatment are being shortchanged and made look ridiculous by employing this man as a doctor. And he goes on to state that on a recent occasion two witnesses saw the doctor quote stretched out on the barrels at Mr. Lydon's pub in Dominic Street, unable to speak. One of the witnesses was Mr. Thomas Kearns, who in an almost exact repetition of the Barrett case, Tom, appealed to the doctor to attend his sick wife. Yet despite being presented with the ticket required to get the 
you know, to cover the costs of a home visit. Yeah, yeah. The doctor, quote, lingered in the public house, used again obscene language, the result of which was the death of this poor man's wife. Now, furthermore, this is a, an extraordinary incident. Furthermore, on the previous Friday, Mr. Kine is still writing this letter. He was passing through the village of Moycullen on his way to Galway when outside John Geraghty's public house, he saw Dr. Connolly. Dr. Connolly saw him and turned towards him and put himself in an insulting and menacing attitude, quote. Another quote, in a grotesque show of contempt, the doctor put his hands under his throat and putting out his tongue as far as it would extend, his face full of contortions, and in this threatening attitude, kept shaking his head towards me until I passed, said poor Mr. Kine. Mr. Kine was so shocked that he could scarcely believe it. He turned back, intending to ask for an explanation, but the doctor returned into Geraghty's bar, and Kane thought it best to leave matters alone. But on the same day, he was reliably informed that Dr. Connolly went to attend a patient, but was so footless from drink that he had tumbled onto the bed of the patient, fell on top of the sick man, their bodies becoming entangled. Now, oh. <laughs> Mr. Kine reminded the guardians that on a previous occasion, the doctor's behaviour was so egregious that the local government board had dispensed with his services altogether. But at the very next meeting of the board, Dr. Connolly was mysteriously reinstated. He was warned, however, to attend to his duties and to behave himself. But Mr. Kine's letter continues. All was well for a short time until Pat Barrett of Ballinahalia reported Dr. Connolly for drunkenness, neglected to attend for eight hours after receiving a ticket, the consequence of which was the death of Barrett's child and the obscene language which Barrett, when Barrett attempted to remonstrate with him. And then Kine produced his dramatic evidence, Tom. Mrs. Barrett, Mr. Kine writes, the poor woman who had lost her child and whose husband had pleaded with the doctor to attend her and whose evidence in the doctor's favour completely won the day and allowed him to carry on his professional clear a career with absolute impunity, she now admitted to accepting, I quote, a sovereign and a quart of wine to give false evidence at the hearing. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Referring to Mrs. Barrett's letter to the local government board, that if it did not pardon the doctor, uh, I will shorten my days, poor Mrs. Barrett had written. Kind asked the guardians, if they would imagine for one moment that Mrs. Barrett would shorten her days if Dr. Connolly had been removed, or would she had ever put her mark, which means she signed such a statement, but for the influence of Dr. Connolly himself, her medical attendant and other sinister motives that drove her to make this outrageous statement. We, uh, Mr. Kine says, as dispassionate men of the world, never doubted for a moment but that the husband was right. And we have been strengthened, nay, fully convinced in that opinion since the bribery came to light. And then in a final swipe at a Dr. T. Brody, who the inspector of the local government board that cleared Dr. Connolly, who heard the case 
Anyway, Kine reminds the Guardians that Brody had stated at the end of that inquiry that he was satisfied he had inquired fully into the whole matter and was satisfied that the doctor was innocent of all charges. Never was a more groundless assertion made, concluded Mr. Kine. Now, <laughs> now I, most people, uh, Tom, you might agree with me here, sometimes, you know, when a drunk man, he, he becomes very articulate and his language can become very flowery. So Dr. Connolly was summoned immediately by the local government board to account for his interfering with the witness of Mrs. Barrett. And Dr. Connolly announced in his <clears throat> most flowery language, I neither bribed nor caused to be bribed Mrs. Barrett nor any other person during the course of my life. The woman voluntarily came and, where is it? The woman voluntarily came and made the statement in my defense. And I used neither gold nor wine to make her stand up for me, as was only right on that occasion. So, well, whether he used gold or wine, we're, we're not sure. But anyway, poor Mrs. Barrett, uh, she only did what she was, uh, I suppose, felt obliged to do, having got such a wonderful bribe of the wine and the one pound piece. So that was the end. The report doesn't say that Dr. Connolly was dismissed. It, it just really says that um, his services were no longer required. And I <laughs> I think we have to conclude the best. Probably uh, yeah. that was the correct decision at the end of the day. The poor man was sick. He was an alcoholic. But he was totally, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now, you're right to have a certain amount of sympathy for him because, you know, I, I've been unable to get illustrations to go with the stories. So I've been using uh, pictures and engravings of sort of medical treatment at the time by dispensary doctors. Dispensary doctors were poorly paid and yeah. they, weren't, they weren't highly regarded. They weren't kind of attached to the hospital and, you know, they didn't have a sort of a, a practice. They were appointed by the local boards, by the guardians, and they were just kind of there to help the sick poor and you know, a lot of them were badly paid, if paid at all on occasions, and they had a lot of work to do if they did them. If they did the work at all, they would be overburdened because they used to, uh, you know, immunize children against smallpox. They used to help from the outbreaks of plague and typhoid fever. I mean, they were in demand, but yeah. very often the type of man and there was always a man that applied to be a dispensary doctor was probably not the best medical help. But anyway, I did learn a lot about the the whole idea of the dispensary doctor. And indeed, there was a big dispensary in Galway City specifically to look out for the poor sick, the sick poor, as they were called. Yeah. And, and next week, Tom, I just want to do a little bit on that talk about the Galway dispensary, the kind of work the doctors had to do, where the dispensaries were located. And indeed, the practice continued, believe it or not, until into the early 1970s. So there's a big story there. I can't tell it 
you know, convincingly enough, you almost need a medical man to tell it. But I'm going to just give an outline of oh, what yeah. the service was, and it was directed at the sick poor, which, of course, they were more than entitled to it, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's it. We have to leave James Connolly uh, lurching from pub to pub. Um, <laughs> poor man. And yes, his, yeah. His future was was not was not a happy one, I'd say. And uh, he could have all the verbose language that he liked that, you know, neither by wine nor gold did I buy her evidence. He yeah, could have yeah. all of that language, but, you know, really he was a drunkard and probably an alcoholic, as you say. And yeah. just falls out of the story, just falls away. Yes, indeed. So we leave it Anyway. There. Yeah, we leave it Okay, there. well, until yeah. next week. Probably. I look forward to it. Enjoy the good weather. I will indeed, Tom. Wrap up well. Bye, Tom. God bless.